All right, everybody, this is Jean Nathan, and it is Crosstown Conversations, and we are having a true Crosstown Conversation today because this is really kind of going back to the original, the origination of this show, which uh, came right after Katrina when we were all in the planning mode, trying to bring our city back, the planning and, and uh, make things happen mode, and... Um, we were trying to help each other, but there was a kind of disconnect between uh, between um, different parts of the city, different communities, and uh, different communities were coming back at a very different pace. And there were lots of reasons for that. It's complicated. It's not straightforward. You know, it's complicated, as they say. And um, so, uh, I think what we're going to try to do today is a kind of little bit of a catch up and a status report and compare notes between the different neighborhoods and um, and then really go into the question of um, you know why the kind of the whys and the and and what are the next steps and how are we developing and going forward so we have people from the lower ninth ward Kim Ford we have people from the Broad Street sixth ward Area is kind of how I typify it. I hope that's okay. Um, Jeff Schwartz and DJ Jordan, um, otherwise known as Dejan. <laughs> and um, we have Jeanette Bone from the Warehouse District, the commercial district of our city. And Andronika, I got it right, <laughs> Andronika Morris, who has a citywide responsibility in affordable housing, which we know is one of the big challenges. So what we're going to kind of try to do today is deal with questions of both um, – uh, we, I think we need one more headset if there's another one available. Um, and so we, we're going to try to talk about kind of – what went well, what didn't go so well. So is everybody listening? Yeah. So what, what, uh, how, uh, how, how have things um, uh, worked uh, um, efficiently and, and what are the real sort of um, successes, what are the failures, and, um, and also, um, you know, what works and what, uh, what works better than other things? What are some of the strategies that have worked best. So, you know, I really, I don't have a, a, a real instinct for who goes first here. So, um, you know, Kim, you're first. You're always first. <laughs> so Kim Ford is a community organizer and citizen of the Lower Ninth Ward. And she has done a lot of work there and other places. And I know that you have a lot to say about the Ninth Ward, of course, is the area of the city that has probably struggled the most. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Jeff, you, you are so connected with things that are going on around the city. You might have a different perspective on that. But um, it's certainly one of the areas that has been the slowest to come back. It was the hardest hit. That's where the, you know, the levy gave way. And uh, it came it actually came from about, I think, three directions, right? From the Industrial Canal, mm -hmm. from the Bayou, and from the Mr. Go. Mm -hmm. And so you got hit from all three sides, and, and uh, going driving through there when I first came back was devastating. And I didn't lose my house. I just mm -hmm. lost part of my city. Kim? Uh, I tell you, and, and today, uh, I, it's, it's, it's still so... 
so fresh. And I hear people say it's uh, 11 years and you get over it, but where in my neck of the woods, it's like it was just yesterday because we still have so many areas that are just like it was, you know, a week after Katrina. And uh, most recently I heard uh, my council member say that the lower nine is no different from uh, uh, a neighborhood that's right outside, like the bottoms in Baton Rouge. But I tell you, the lower ninth ward was not the bottoms. The lower ninth ward was a very progressive community of blue collar, white collar citizens that worked hard to uh, become homeowners. It was the largest influx of home ownership comparative across the country you know, with being one of the top neighborhoods across the country. And I'm sure that neighborhood in Baton Rouge never had that. <laughs> you know, so it's no wonder that if you have somebody that's saying that about your neighborhood and that's your council person who represents your area, then that helps me to understand why. I know why my neighborhood has failed. And we have so much, uh, either you're going to be a crony or you're gonna be? It's gonna be nepotism or cronyism. That has that is what has plagued our neighborhood, where we have administrators, city administrators, pitting one neighbor against another, and that makes a big difference on how well your neighborhood survives. And and I just can't even see if I were a developer and someone was saying those types of negative things, then I wouldn't want to come back to that community either. And I, I always felt like the people who lived there should have been more on the front end of ensuring that their neighborhoods were developed. And just to have a few people who are willing to step up and say, well, I represent the whole community, that's not the way it should be. That's not the way it should be. And just this morning at the doctor, talking with some of my neighbors, sitting in the doctor's office, we actually talked about that. How uh, I was talking about how last night at the Hanover board meeting, uh, it was a conversation that oh, we've met with the Holy Cross Neighborhood Association. Guess what? The Holy Cross Neighborhood Association may have a membership of 75 people. And the lower ninth ward right now, we have about 5,000 households that are registered with Entergy. But people are really still struggling and suffering with real issues about being able to live in their home. The, the, the new influx of elderly homeless in the entire city of New Orleans is enough that, and you know, most of the people who own property in the Lower Ninth Water are elderly people. So, you know, if you're getting taxed from city planning, on the door you have on your property because you live in a historic district, but then the city changed the whole charter for a developer. They changed all of that for a developer to come in, but for citizens rebuilding your property, you are under very, very strict guidelines on what you cannot do. And I said, well, give me a plan. I'm trying to rebuild my house. Give me a plan to tell me what I can't do. Oh, no, you have to submit what you're going to do first, and then we'll come back and tell you what you can't do. So, you know, it's it's That's a lot strange. of things that have helped to frustrate and thwart, I mean, just outright thwart growth in our neighborhood. And at this point for the New Orleans Redevelopment Authority, the, 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 which has uh, 
and cured so many properties post-Katrina from the Road Home Project. And none of that has included citizens from my neighborhood. None of that development. And when there are properties up for auction, people who have been born and raised in this community have to sit across the table from developers from all over the world <laughs> to compete for those properties. So I think that our leadership and the city of New Orleans has helped to uh, uh, promote the gentrification and the outing of long-term citizens in this community. Um, 2609265 for anybody who wants to join this conversation. Um, so, okay, that, again, we said that to begin with, the most difficult area, and it's, it's, it's complicated. There are other layers on top of what mm -hmm. Kim yes. has portrayed. Um, let, let's go to um, Broad Street. So Broad Street's a very different picture. Um, so Broad Street, um, I think you would, it's just, maybe it was luck or something that MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, I guess it is, had a professor who took an interest in what was going on down here, brought his class down here to to help look at what was going to happen to Broad Street was hit pretty hard too. Mm -hmm. Let's not you know let's not forget. I think um, Jeff Schwartz you told me yesterday that it was a drainage ditch at one time in history, which explains to something about why the water rose so high there. And so it, it was in trouble. It was in trouble before. A lot of the places that were in trouble after the storm were already in trouble. So Broad Street was not thriving before the storm. Um, and then, um, you know, the storm comes along and um, Carl... Seidman. Seidman. Seidman yeah. comes to town with, among other people, Jeff who's originally from here, and he makes a commitment to stay here. And then you're lucky in having a person like Lisa Amos, who's one of the ultimate community organization people, very, very practical person. And, um, you know, that that's the seed right there. And then all the communities around it, you know, Treme and Bayou St. John and Lafitte and... Um, what am I leaving out? Mid City mm -hmm. is really on the board. Lower Mid City, Mid City, yep. Fairgrounds right. Triangle. So, so you have a lot of firepower in those neighborhoods of different kinds. Some of the same kind of energy you have in the Ninth Ward. A lot of really sort of like dig in, and if you got to deal with the clash, deal with it. Mm -hmm. And then also just people of means, yep. quite frankly, mm -hmm. uh, in the Bayou Saint John area, um, and people who have been fighting for 200 years. Mm -hmm. The people who live in Treme, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so you had a lot to work with, and tell me what you feel. Um, you know, you've done Whole Food, right? And, and that's a biggie. And so I want you to describe what that is and, and why that was a target and what that means. Um, and also just, you know, uh, what what are some of the things besides this that little lucky thing of having the MIT engagement and commitment that have made a difference for you in, in achieving what you've gotten done so far? So lots to be done yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I think I think that's a great setup, Gene. I think um, a lot of it is is luck. Uh, I do think that um, uh, you know a little bit of luck and a lot of sweat goes a long way. But you know, like Kim can tell you, that doesn't get you all, all the way there. I think that what Broad Street, just like so many commercial corridors in the city, has going for it are the, the neighbors and the people around uh, the commercial corridor. And I think for 
a really long time this city uh, didn't do enough for thinking about how communities relate to their the business owners and the commercial corridors that are in their midst um, and vice versa. And I think that um, only only recently have we come to appreciate how important uh, you know neighborhood business institutions are to the culture of, of a city. Uh, just like social aid and pleasure clubs, just like um, you know a lot of the cultural traditions that that the residents themselves have, businesses are also critically important to how healthy a community is, how vibrant a community is. And you know, Kim Kim could tell you know better than anybody at the table about how important it is to have that activity in in a neighborhood. Um, and I think the you know one of the the best things that Broad had going for it, well, well two things. One, the neighborhoods around Broad Street, and then two. There's 35 or 40,000 cars a day uh, going up and down Broad Street. It's always been, you know, since I was growing up, and I know a long time before that, Broad was the best way to get uptown and downtown. If you're in Gentilly or the East, if you don't want to take I-10, you know, or Claiborne and get stuck in a bunch of traffic on the high-rise, it's one of the best ways to get, um, you know, in and out of town. It's actually, you know, to go to go way back into history, it's actually a part of the, the old Spanish trail it was what took you out on Gentilly and Chef Mentor out through the Wrigley's. Um, it's a part of US 90, right. um, just like Highway 61 was. Exactly, Highway 61 was the Blues Highway. You know, if Bob Dylan actually traveled from Minnesota back down the Blues Highway and relived, you know, all, all of that culture. We should get Bob Dylan to come back and do I a agree. fundraiser for us. I agree. He already, he somebody, already loves New somebody, Orleans. Somebody out there, make that call. <laughs> yeah. If you happen to know Gene, him. you got to know someone that knows Bob Dylan, right? Uh, Quint Davis. Quint, That's Quint? A, call on Quint Davis. There you go. You need him to do we got a fundraiser brewing here. Seriously. Yeah. Well, so, I, you know, I just, I think, you know, that Highway 61, um, and US 90, you know, Broad and Tulane Avenue were the roads in and out of town. Um, and so, uh, you know, Claiborne obviously was, you know, an incredible epicenter of, of, you know, black culture, not only in New Orleans, but, you know, for the country. I, I've heard a lot of folks describe it as being only rivaled by Harlem, uh, you know, in terms of the wealth and the culture that was there. And, you know, I think we all know what was lost. And, you know, a lot of folks at this table and around New Orleans know what was lost over the last couple of generations. Um, you know, it's still there. It's it's just lying fallow. Um, but I think that... Not quite lying fallow, because actually when you go to the upper part of Claiborne, yeah, there's, it's actually, you look around and you say, whoa. Yeah. You know, you no, there's some remnants. There, there, there are, yeah, there are. There are. Well, I think, it's more than remnants. I mean, you've got some new shopping yeah. uh, elements. It, it wants to happen. I agree. And yeah. I think I think it's putting some infrastructure and some, some resources and energy yeah, behind it. When that. they get that club back that used to have all that great music, then we'll know it's back. <laughs> well, you yeah. know, yeah, who's, 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 who was at that hotel up there that had the club? I used to go there all the time. I can't believe the name of it. Mason's Las Vegas Strip. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Not that I know. Yeah, not that you remember there. That's right? where I used to go hear people like um, yeah, everybody. Uh, everybody. Everybody, yeah. Guitarists. Yeah. Well, you know, even even Broadhead, you know, we still got Prime Example and Chickiwawas right off uh, Broad on Canal. But, you know, Irma used to have the Lion's Den. And, it, yeah. you know, Broad, I think... I think really so much, you know, they always say there's nothing new under the sun. There's so much that uh, all of our commercial quarters, Claiborne, Broad, St. I mean, look at St. Bernard. Why is St. Bernard? Why does, you know, why is that the way it is? You know, some of it has been deliberate, but I think a lot of it has been because a, a lot of either leadership at the community level and at the city level just hasn't 
thought about our commercial corridors as really the, the backbones of the city in, in a long time. I want to just uh, uh, editorialize on that. Sure. You know, um, w- when we went through all those planning phases after the storm, the <laughs> Bring New Orleans Back, the UNOP, the Master Plan, the Comprehensive Zoning, and then things pretty much get back into the old institutional mm-hmm. framework, I was really hoping that the community spirit that brought all the neighborhoods back, because that's what brought them back. We mm-hmm. know that. We know yeah, that. Right. There was a time when the official universe was, uh, they were just overwhelmed. Oh, and yeah. so it really took the people in the neighborhoods to bring it back. And um, I, I don't feel like there was there, there was a disconnect. Instead of there being a kind of endorsement and an embracing of that, it was like, okay, kids, you can go home now. <laughs> That's right. The grown-ups yeah. will take back over right. a little bit. Mm-hmm. It, it, this, 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 I'm not going to say that's a wholesale because I, the, the mayor's neighborhood engagement office is working at mm-hmm. it. Other organizations, there's a million little organizations in the city working at it. Right. I want to talk to DJ for a minute because yeah. um, he's, he's the new blood in town on, <laughs> on the Broad Street. And um, I'm really looking. I know that DJ and I are going to get down on Broad Street <laughs> and figure out how to bring, bring the mojo back, right? <laughs> So, so tell me what your feelings are. Why did you sign on? Um, DJ's an architect. He studied at LSU. You, you're native to New Orleans? Yes, or? born and raised. Okay. Uh, New there you go. And so um, what, what's your feeling about it? Why did you sign on? Uh, for me, I'd been uh, away from home for about uh, 11 years, almost exactly. Um, and this was an opportunity to actually come back home and to reinvest in the community that raised me and taught me so much about the importance of culture. It was only after, uh, really only after leaving and watching things disappear, and especially in my own neighborhood and across the city, that I realized what I was beginning to lose. And, um, you know, I made some attempts in school to make the work practical, but no place is like home. <laughs> and there are no intricacies like this, you know, the, the layering of the people, the hospitality, the the food and um, so much more. <laughs> Can we more. ever say anything right. about New Orleans without saying food? You know, like you, you can't take that away. It's you know, I go to other places and people think I'm a a, a, a New Orleans snob. You know the way because they don't think they know. <laughs> and I and I'm right there with you. When I go back to New York, my hometown, and I go to some restaurant, that everybody says this is the this is it. I'm saying you got to be kidding me. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think the 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 thing that really drew me back was the opportunity to deal with such a challenging issue, the capital G that we've all been kind of lightly talking about gentrification, and um, finding a way to use this new influx of people in a way that's beneficial to the city because we are a melting pot, we are gumbo, mm-hmm. and like we, we need that mix of energy, but at the same time it has to be mitigated in some way to make sure that people that are native are not are pushed out. Exactly. Yeah. You know? Well, that actually, uh, I think that's a good uh, uh, lead into uh, Andronica because that, that's your chief concern, isn't it? Yes. That's what we've been working on. That's what we've been working on with Housing NOLA. How do we address affordability in long term uh, to the points that were made about the planning processes and how it wasn't incorporated into our everyday life or into the everyday lives of our elected officials and the decision makers? Housing NOLA is an attempt to you know, write that ship. So it's a community-led initiative that has the city government sitting at the table with everyday citizens and talking about this this affordability crisis that we absolutely know has happened, um, proving that, because there's still people to this day 
Uh, there are still people who say, do we really need more affordable housing? You're kidding, really? Yeah. <laughs> Why did I say that? Of course. Yeah, of, of course. course. Of course. And, but, and, and also a lot of it, but it's also very cynical because, and that's why we have to have data as the foundation because it, it waves it off and says, well, this is what the market can bear. And it's not what this market can bear. This is not Austin. This is not San Francisco. This isn't Harlem or Brooklyn. This is New Orleans. And this is a city with a 20% vacancy rate when you factor in blight. Vacant housing, you know, unoccupied homes and apartments that can't sell, that can't rent, blighted housing, 20% vacancy. That number alone says it's not a supply and demand problem. It's a market problem. So the market needs interventions, and it, need, it needs because it's not working. You study any economist in the world will tell you, no, no, that, that type of supply, that type of vacancy means that instead of spending a half a million dollars on a house in a block, with a vacant property in it or a blighted house, common sense would say buy the vacant lot, spend $250,000, and get the same house. Why are you sinking a half a million dollars into, into this house as if it's the last chance to go into this community? And that's what we're seeing. That's what these prices are telling us. And we're going to run out of people who can afford this just because that's, those numbers aren't who make up the city. And we're not going to get a massive influx and automatically just displace people. What's going to happen is the neighborhoods that have all of a sudden become chic and fashionable will 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 become there'll be more pressure and it's still not uniform. Everybody talks about what's going on in St. Rock. That's not all of St. Rock. You go on the other side of St. Claude and the other side of St. Rock looks just like it did 6 years ago. Uh, and it's the it's the, it's uh, it's so it's very it's very fractured. Central City, which is starting to see some of the pressures, that pressure isn't going below O.C. Haley. Mm -hmm. You go into Hoffman Triangle, which has some of the best transit in the city, and you see a community that is still struggling to, re to rebound. You go into Girttown. Um, you go into parts of Treme, the 6th Ward, the 7th Ward. Go into parts of, of Gentilly. It's everywhere, and there's vacancy everywhere. You can drive through the Black Pearl through Laura Garden District, this um, is Lakeview, such a and vacant properties everywhere. So why why aren't we buying those and fixing those up? Who's we? The the citizen, the collective. Mm -hmm. <laughs> why why isn't why are these why are properties going for so high when there's still opportunities next door and it's the this market is broken and so we need to fix it. So the market has to be intervened. So, so, so why are uh, why are those properties being priced so high? Because I'll tell you what, what you just said to me is kind of like a wake up call for me. Because <coughs> I live in Treme, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm seeing people move in like crazy, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking, and I'm seeing prices on houses. There was a house in back of my house that when I bought mine, I wanted to buy, and I couldn't, I didn't have enough money. It was for sale for twenty thousand dollars. It was about. Um, I think it was, I don't remember whether it was 1,000 or 2,000 square. It was about 2,000 square foot, kind of like a service quarters type house. It just sold for like close to $400,000. That's right. That's on right. Barrack Street. That's right. And there's opportunities there. So, so, so I'm hearing that, and now you're telling me, no, there's a 20% vacancy rate. So when you say it's broken, what is the nature of the break, mm -hmm. and and what do you see what are, what are the solutions that we one of the things I try to do with my show always is to motivate my listener right. to help 
you know, I don't want you to just be listening out there and learning. I want you to think about, okay, what role can you play? And in my newsletter, I keep reminding everybody, you better get yourself registered to vote mm -hmm. because That's right. don't assume that just because we have a red state that that's the end of the story. Look how we, we got right an elected yeah. a Democratic <laughs> governor, the first Democratic <laughs> governor in the South in a long time. So, okay, anyway. So what, what, is, it, what is the nature of the break, and right. what do we need to do? So there are a couple of natures to the break. I wish it was just greedy property owners and landlords just gouging everyone. One is insurance, right? So when you start talking about rents um, being unaffordable, Small mom-and-pop landlords who make up most of this city's landlords. This is a city of doubles. They have to, and this is what everyone does, you pass on those expenses to your renters. So if your property, if your insurance is higher, that's, you have to pass that on in increased rent. So there's a mismatch right out the gate. Most people work in the service industry here in some form of the service industry making between $7.25 an hour to the high end of $15 an hour. You can't afford $1,100 in rent. You, you, can't, you can't afford that, making $7.25 an hour. And that's who, who lives here. And we're not um, the folks who live. And, and, and there's this mismatch in opportunity. So we've got market conditions like insurance and property taxes and also crime. All these other issues that are, are, are making it very difficult for the city to kind of rebound properly. But we've also got to think about how do we intervene. So we've got to talk about insurance. Um, how do we really deal with that? One of the first initiatives that um, we were working on with the city was the FEMA flood maps. So we expect in October that there's going to be an across-the-board reduction in everybody's flood insurance. Now, does that mean rents are going to go down? Because the landlords are not paying as much, are they going to pass that on to the tenants? We put a fee in place um, to go along with something. It, it pass may not that happen on. immediately, but it will have gradually an impact, I would think. So would someone's not going <laughs> to drop the rent on someone who's in their apartment right now. But when the next one comes in, if the market is more competitive, That's right. then so it's going to push the price down. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree with you more about the insurance. I mean, this is hitting me hard. And you know what really... Let's see, how can I say this on the air? P owed me big time. <laughs> is that when we chose to live where we live, which is on a ridge, on Esplanade Ridge, we chose it because it was high, because Tan and my husband had been through the whole ordeal of dealing with the um, redevelopment of the coast of Mississippi. That's how we came here in the first place. So he said, uh, you know, when I said I want to live downtown, first of all, not uptown, mm -hmm. and, I, and then I chose Esplanade, he said he checked out the sea level. He said, yeah, okay. Why do I have to pay the same amount of insurance when I made that choice that somebody who choose, who didn't pay attention to the sea level issue and, and, and chose a lower... Well, you're probably not. You're probably paying more than you can afford, and that person's paying even more than you. I mean... <laughs> 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 no, because the, they... But they, I don't get any break. I'm not... No, I'm not right. getting a break for the fact that I'm in a, in a uh, non... Yeah. My house didn't flood. That's right. But you know, I mean, in addition to being, you know, four feet above sea level... Wow, what a mountain. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, my house is another four feet up. So, but why should I have to pay the, but, well, so insurance gonna, is killing us. I can right. tell you that right now. And even after we get this, this across the board reduction that we're going to, that we're going to get come October. About, one, about how much? What percentage? We're not, we're waiting to see now what the percentage is going to be once the National Flood Insurance Program issues those new rates. So we're hopeful that it's going to be significant. We expect to see um, that it's going to be like at least, um, 
tri- uh, triple digits for every for everyone across the board. So triple digits. Yeah, it's like just big money. <laughs> but we're we're hoping for that. But we've got to wait and see. The other yeah. problem though is. The National Flood Insurance Program, we kicked the can. We let our, uh, and to your point about voting, Gene, we let the delegation, the delegation let um, the con- Congress kick it, kick the can down the road on addressing the solvency or lack of solvency in the National Flood Insurance Program. So that pro- that's going to be reauthorized by Congress next year. And so we could very well lose any um, decreases we get this year if Congress decides that they're going to continue to make it solvent by passing those costs on and not further subsidizing it. So we've got to make sure that our congressional delegation and the um, that they are handling this issue. We've got to work okay. across the country uh, on Stop that right one. there because, you know, you just went right over my head. Sorry. And so I'm sure there are some people in the audience who um, have about my IQ level and didn't quite catch that either. Break that down. Give me some real simple language. Sure. What do we need people to tell their representatives that they want them to do? That we've got to have smart, solvent flood insurance that is affordable across the country. More and more of this country is flooding. And so this is the National Flood Insurance Program is federally funded for a reason. Um, and we've got, to be, we've, got to be, we've got to be strategic about it. We've got to be smart about it. But that, but that doesn't mean that we gouge people who live in low-lying areas and don't pass those costs on to people who have also flooded and taken advantage of uh, the, the flood insurance program. And that also means that we've got to also start looking at the private insurance market because we know part of the problem with the NFIP that came out of Louisiana was that the private insurance companies pushed everything into the flood insurance. Mm-hmm. They, everything was flood. Every, and we know it was a flooding event, but if the roof flew off, that wasn't caused by floodwaters. You had people who had to fight and say, no, no, yes, I got water inside of my house, but here's the water line. This is roof roof damage. Yeah. This is your responsibility. And the insurance companies trying to push everything into the National Flood Insurance Program, which helped to make it more unstable. And so, again, with what's going on nationally at Congress, you know, that tightening of the belt, Trying to you know be more judicial, judicious with these funds. We don't disagree no, with no, that. No, 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 no. More stingy with the funds. More stingy Next. with the. You are correct. <laughs> we've but we've got to be practical. And again, this is a this is an issue that affects again uh, where there's opportunity to work. Sand, Hurricane Sandy. You know everybody who floods along the the the, the rest of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. This is we're talking about Miami. We're talking about half the country that is now vulnerable. Um, and, and because of climate change, because of, of what's going on. And so this is no longer... Climate change? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is no longer just those of us who chose to live in swampy land and below sea level. This is really a national, country, a national issue, and we have to make sure that the country treats it that way. And it's not just a political football for the more conservative and more radical aspects of the, the Republican Party. To, to politicize. You know, um, way back um, before the storm, I did some work with um, the America's Wetland people. I don't. Some of you know what that mm-hmm. is, and maybe not. But it was um, it was basically one of the one of the campaigns that made an effort to inform people about coastal uh, erosion and and what the effect of that was going to be. And at one point, we were trying to figure out how to break through nationally. And we came up with this idea. Actually, I came up with it. Mm -hmm. But um, it it got developed by others. But it was called Women of the Storm. Mm -hmm. And we sent our our fine ladies Mm -hmm. from down here up to Congress 
with umbrellas, the whole, you know, second line thing, and um, went into the offices of congressional representatives and said, pay attention, we are losing our coast, do something. (laughs) And it it took a while, but we did get certain, we didn't get everything by any means, we're still fighting for it, but we did begin to get some breakthroughs with especially dealing with um, the offshore return of income to the state of Louisiana. It's one of the things that Mary Landrieu fought for. So, again, I mean, I think that um, I'm going to ask you to send me some language because I want you to break it down even further from what you just said, and Mm -hmm. let's make it really clear about how people can get that message up there, and maybe we can start a little phone campaign, Mm -hmm. a little, um, uh, what did we used to call that when I used to do political work? You know, you um, Phone bank? Phone bank, thank yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get old, anybody. So, um, yeah, and, and, and start getting, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that we do get what we need. That's right. Let me talk about the arts. Um, I, I, I can't do any show without um, talking about the arts. That's part of my life, and um, I believe strongly in it. I'm working right now on a big NEA grant that uh, is all about how the artists contribute to placemaking, how artists help. uh, revitalize and bring back neighborhoods and um, I'm working with the St. Bernard folks on that and um, we have with us Jeanette Bone who works with the uh, Boyd Satellite Gallery on Julia Street and with the Warehouse District Arts The Arts District Association New Orleans Arts District Association Okay, that's what you call it now. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's been through about three Actually, different name arts, changes over the arts years. Arts District New Orleans. It's ADNO now. Ah, cool. Yes. Good. Okay. So, um, and, and the arts, I, I'm, I'm telling you guys, I hate to take, well, yes, I, no, I don't. I'd like to take credit for what I do, but when my husband and I formed the Contemporary Arts Center, I went around raising money from people saying, give us a little money so we can open our doors and we will transform the warehouse district of New Orleans, which was Skid Row at the time. Mm-hmm. That's all it was, I'm telling you. And I, it, it, I it sh- mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I remember. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's Kim. You can't hear her, I don't think, right at this minute, <laughs> but she's saying she remembers. Yeah. And, and, and so we turned it around just by putting in this empty warehouse at 900 Camp Street that Sidney Bestoff lent us, Lou McGlade, and, and um, Sonny Norman went to him and said, can we borrow that building? And he said, yes. And that was really critical for us getting that thing open. (coughs) And then it transformed. And then we lined up with the galleries. Yes. You know, and and, and we said, hey, let's all open at the same time. You know, I I still to this day think that we were the first ones in the country to do that, but I'm not positive of having the joint um, openings. Do you know the history of that? I don't know the total history, but we certainly are the one – city that actually makes sense with that because we're so close together it's very concentrated That's true. Yeah. and it makes for a very um, coherent event but I think we've seen it you know the warehouse district had revived post the world's fair I mean really back to the 80s we were so I don't think it's so interesting even though I think the galleries are now being priced out of the area which is a is that right yeah, well, the you know, the real estate is so high, the rent is so high, people are not collecting art like they used to. And I think it's, a, you know, it's very difficult to, um, this is why we have sort of rebranded the association to be much more inclusive. At one time, it was kind of a little snooty and exclusive, and it was just about the arts, but we're trying to make it as a national, international destination. But I think the in terms of what's being discussed here, 
Um, we've certainly seen it, you know, we're the representative of the artists, but then the artists themselves, you know, the Marini and Bywater were ideal locations for, uh, in some of those old warehouses, they were occupied by all different kinds of individual artists, arts organizations. It was kind of rough and ready. I remember my friend's studios, you know, uh, they had to work certain hours. They didn't have air conditioning, etc. But it was good. They didn't have to make a lot of money. It used to be the Big Easy. We all know that. There was certainly uh, a difference, um, a significant difference between our cost of living here and some of the other major cities in the U.S. that we embraced, and um, I think are very sad to see that having moved on long since. Um, we're no longer easy in that way. And so, of course, we saw with the development and the influx of new energy, which is wonderful in one way, um, in many ways, in fact, but we saw the young professionals moving into the lofts in the warehouse district and the more bohemian creative people moving into the Marini and Bywater and thus transplanting and sending up the rents. I mean, this happens. I studied this in college back in the early 80s in London, looking at Covent Garden and how when the market from there moved out, it became Skid Row. And that whole area was completely impoverished when I was doing my survey and looking at the, you know, we're proposing how to revitalize it. Well, then the artists move in and it became a very artistic area. And now it's nothing more than a huge shopping center. Mm -hmm. um, and so th this thing is a global phenomenon. Uh, we've just got to find a way to train it better here because we're seeing so many artists being displaced from um, from their studios, like the rice mill was, I knew several people who had studios in there, and now it's one of the most exclusive kind of um, condominium addresses to so have. So it's so ironic. Mm -hmm. what, you're, what you're saying is that your success is breeding a certain kind of failure yes. for uh, too many people, for uh, artists. And, and the opposite phenomena uh, happened in, in, in the Lower Ninth Ward, where y you never got that success. And right. still, you're faced with some of the same challenges. And, um, you know, Broad Street, uh, you've had some success in getting a couple projects that are really, I mean, getting the whole refresh health center, educational center going in partnership with Whole Foods, right smack in the middle of the whole uh, uh, district is, is critically important. But we got a long way to go there. And so... Uh, but there may be a point where we'll actually, again, we'll, we'll start seeing, and I know you already have had to fight a couple chains off <laughs> that wanted mm -hmm. to come in there and, and to keep it local. But, yeah, what has anybody come up with? I, 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 at one point when I was really focusing on it, I was trying to figure out, so what is the way to control the, the what is a very organic process from going over the top and then and then pushing it into. Right. I saw the same thing in Soho. My friend has a, a studio on Prince Street. Well, that was like that was <laughs> that was light industrial. Right. Then the artists oh, yeah. came in, and now I look out her window and there's a great big damn gap, <laughs> you know, and all those other chain stores. It's, you know, <laughs> Jeff, you study what? this stuff. Can't we head that off? Well, mm -hmm. yeah, right. It's we want to we want to have our cake and eat it too. Um, I I think I think that mm -hmm. well, Angelica was you know was saying this before, and I think 
the 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 trick really is and and i there's there's no silver bullet to it like like she was saying there all you can do is is manage uh growth but i you know the one thing as someone who you know i'm maybe not a spring chicken i'm not uh super old either uh but you know someone who's who's seen new orleans you know before and after katrina i think i think we need to look at the idea that it it is it's a it's a wicked problem to be managing decline. It's a zero sum game when you're managing a city that is dealing with consistently fewer and fewer resources to go around. Which and is what we were doing before. It's what Katrina, we were doing right? before, yeah. And I think there was there was some stability and stasis, like you know Kim was saying. I mean, you had communities like the Lower Nine, which in the aftermath of Katrina and today get portrayed as a typical inner city American community when, when it wasn't, it had the, some of the highest rates of home ownership and was, you know, yes, it was facing some challenges, but it was an incredibly vibrant and rich community with a, a deep history. And so I think new Orleans, you know, had been managing, you know, ever gracefully as it, as it does, you know, this, this kind of plateau, if you will. And I think it, it, in, that's one of the reasons it's so out of lockstep with the rest of the country because every other city is consistently reinventing itself here um, or, or in, in this country. And, you know, just, you know, if New York, you know, they do some preservation, but, you know, the, the new is always and ever present. Okay, I didn't hear an answer to my question. Sure, yet. well, so where I'm, where I'm going <laughs> is is that, so now I think we're managing growth, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that is, as Andronika said, it's, it's patchy. It is, it is highly uneven. Some people are enjoying the benefits of that, whereas uh, probably the majority of folks are either agnostic or not enjoying the benefits of right. that. And so I think I think where what we need to do is have interventions. And so on the on the residential side, which is what the Greater New Orleans Housing Alliance is is focusing on, we need to have policies in place that look at how to ensure that people, you know whether they've been living here for generations or, you know, folks who have come here for work, you know, that there's also a lot of those folks. We're struggling. Uh, yeah, who exactly. We they, they need to have a place in, in our communities. So and, so I, I understand. That's yeah. the need. But that, we're still not talking solutions. So well, can, can I, I put some – go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, please. Well, so I think, Andronique, I'll, I'll leave it to her to talk about some of the solutions in the housing arena. I think on the commercial side, I think what we need is more tools and, and more capacity – on the ground for development to happen that isn't just the lowest common denominator development where a dollar store or a rent a center or a national chain comes in and, you know, yes, they could pay the rent, but what are they actually bringing back to the community? Is there job growth? Is there job training? Is there wealth building opportunities? Um, are they contributing to the culture in, in any way? And to really, you know, look at ways of, of building that capacity. New Orleans, I would argue, has higher quality development going on than it did pre-Katrina. There's, a, I mean, there's still a lot of shoddy slum lords on the commercial and residential side, but I think there's some real growth in the development side of things where people care about our, you know, how beautiful our buildings were and should be, you know, it's part of our built heritage. And I think that um, there are folks who care about what our commercial corridors look like and how they support um, our communities. But I think we need a whole lot more of that. I think just getting, just looking at economic development as jobs and dollars and cents doesn't cut it. And I'll just finish by saying this. We, we were talking about this the other day, Gene and, and DJ and I were having a conversation on this. And I think that 
whereas in other communities, and I don't want to say that there aren't communities around the country who have, have lost things when gentrification happens, but I think when gentrification happens in New Orleans, and, and by gentrification I mean primarily the negative downsides as in displacement, displacement. what you lose in New Orleans is absolutely price, priceless. Right. In other communities in the country, gentrification happens, and it's tragic because communities that have been disinvested in um, you know, they, they lose precisely well, at times. What, what, what we lose when we have displacement in New Orleans is, is we lose, we lose this people. phenomenal cultural legacy yep. that we have here that has survived, um, you know, Centuries. a civil war, yeah. a world That's right. war, yep. and, you know, decades and decades of poverty. And somehow. it comes back to people. It's the people yeah. in New Orleans. And, and now and we're having this, you know, influx of people that's wonderful, and yet... Well, but and, it's also key to... The identity of the city, yep. right, with an economic base that is tourism, that loss not is isn't just the crime against humanity that it is. It is also slitting the throat of this city, long term. I want you to. There's an article in today. I think it's today's New York or yesterday's New York Times about um, can Venice be saved? Oh, I just saw that. Right. I didn't read it, but I saw that. Okay, in the, so I thought morning. it was going to be about <laughs> rising. Sea level? Ocean, no. It's about tourism. Uh -huh. And it's yeah, about how be, tourism yeah. has hollowed out yeah. the That's life right. of the city. That's yeah. right. And I, so I, I actually am going to put it in my newsletter for next week because I want people in New Orleans to realize that if we rely totally on tourism, right. mm -hmm. we are going Doomed. down a slippery slope. <laughs> That's right. But I want to pose an idea, okay? <laughs> I just have this idea that I have had ever since the storm, and um, maybe somebody is going to pick this idea up. I can't do it. It's not my skill base, but... You know how you have co-op buildings where mm -hmm. people jointly own the building, mm -hmm. yeah, and they they pay a certain fee to the to the ownership of the building. Mm -hmm. Plus, they pay their own rent, but it's it's a co-op. Why can't we do co-op blocks where we have, let's say, on a block you have half a dozen, a dozen, a half, let's say, um, I don't know, ten houses that people own and are okay. And then you have a bunch of blighted property around it. What if there was a formula that incentivized or made it possible for the people that are in the houses that are there to purchase that property as a group, as a co-op, and then bring it back so that the ownership of that block is by the residents right. who live on the block? Because isn't the real key to avoiding displacement ownership well that's part of it but yep. uh, jeff and i can answer this question pretty well because jeff's on the board of the crescent city community land trusts and so that's been how the market not the market but how the affordable housing industry has kind of organically addressed the question that you're talking about gene about instead of co-ops doing land trusts that are co community-based land trusts what's the difference between a land trust and a co-op um other than the fact that you would pay like condo fees and co-ops co or typically you see them in apartment buildings, mm -hmm. land trusts. I'm just saying a different model. No, well, yeah, no, yeah. but land trusts actually speak more to your model because you see those more across communities in, in a, an expanded footprint. Mm -hmm. the, the actual, the land trust um, that we have in New Orleans is in the Lower Ninth Ward. It's, it's Nina. Mm -hmm. And they've had some struggles with, with getting that model going. Part of it is though that Louisianians, and people who want the American dream also want to own the land under their feet. And so when you start talking about that, it's a, it's a shift in 
um, how you achieve it. And the land trust can be a part of the model alongside traditional home ownership mm -hmm. because not everyone is going to be able to own the house and pay the mortgage. A land trust may be a way to, or even help people as a stepping stone to the traditional home ownership model. I, I'm, I'm still having a, a disconnect in my mind between, so land trust sounds like it's more of a broader territory and the trust, I'm not sure who owns the trust. I understand that it facilitates home ownership, but what I'm saying is if, if you've got a f uh, some homeowners on a block and you facilitate them being able to get, they call them soft seconds, and I don't really, I've never understood what a soft second is, but, <laughs> no, uh, but, but if, if you facilitate them being able to finance the purchase of those properties, and maybe they can work with the land trust, what, let's no, what say, you're to just, develop those properties, and yeah. then those properties can either be sold or rented, but the ownership, I'm just saying. But that's a, that's a community saying, land trust. Focus in on that's the a, block. It, that's a community land trust. That's a community land trust. Like, a co-op mm -hmm. is an apartment building is the difference. Well, a and land it trust have to be a property. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, but I mean, but that's what we moved to the land trust model. That's the the number. That's the model that the funders like. So that's the the the, the correct the term for it. The funders like. Yes, because oh, yeah. you gotta do what the funders <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah. Where, where's the money gonna come from? We have a, a conversation. In the same conversation that we're talking about uh, the importance of maintaining a culture, and that the value of maintaining the culture. And then right in the next paragraph, we can go into the fact that, well, we're going to do this because that's what the funders want. You know, no, it's not okay. It's not okay. And especially here. Well, no, here, I mean, I was using the especially language. Especially here where. Yeah, but we were talking about Jean's idea, which oh, is coming from okay. her. Right. And so, what we call it, because no, that's what the funders like. It's no, all. No. And so I, you I'm, don't like Jean's idea. Well, I, I, I'm, I, it's land trust that concern me. Right. That's it's what land she's, trust but that's that what she's describing. What don't you like about a land trust? Well, in particular, in my neighborhood, there was some uh, concerns about the leadership of an organization who had promoted the whole idea of a land trust. And from that uh it went kind of real bad, real fast. See, that, wait, let me finish. Let me finish. And, <laughs> and, and from that, I learned that a land trust is only good when the leadership was over that land trust. It's other things that have to take place besides just the model of what a land trust is. So we can sit here all day and night and, and speak and rave about how wonderful it is. But every land trust in that model has to have individual people a part of that. Mm -hmm. And guess what? If you get somebody in there who's only perpetrated, like that's what they're in there for, and they do all these things. I mean, because there are books about how to There's ways to manipulate boards. They can be manipulated, human capacity. But if you get the wrong person in there, your investment is down the tubes, down the river without a without a row, you know. So down a boat without a row or whatever, you 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 up the creek, okay? Paddle without a paddle. A paddle without a paddle. That's right. Okay. So here's what here, here's and that's that, why I deal and that, with that's trust. why I'm saying the block, because now same issue. You could have a bad mixture of leadership on a block. Mm -hmm. But I like that idea of the block 
unit, which you're talking about your neighbors that are right close into you. Now, neighbors are mixed. <laughs> they don't always work out either, you know. That's right. I, I, I've got great neighbors, and I've got neighbors that I wish would move away. But um, so I, I understand that we're talking about. Um, it's, it's always complicated. It's always it is. Personalities. That's right. And and and, 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 and self interest versus community interest. But mm-hmm. I, I just like the idea of the smaller unit of people that can work on it. And, and, and that's why I use the word co-op. You know, again, it is something that I'm familiar with from being a, you know, city girl and that's a wrong. place where there's a lot of condos and that I can't afford. But um, uh, the idea of a block as the unit where people share have is some really you can still own your own property. You still own your own apartment in a condo. Mm-hmm. But you still you, own the land, right? But well, you, yes, you can own the land and the house, and house. but okay. you, you share a certain <coughs> financial responsibility for the total, the combination of the buildings that are on a block. I don't know. Anyway, it's an idea that I'd love to see you explore. Let me okay. move on because we now we're getting down to the mm-hmm. – I wish we had another hour to talk. But um, I, I kind of cut you off because I wanted to lead into um, – uh, DJ, I wanted to lead into Andronika. But um, where are we going from here? What are the next steps – what uh, what do you think is going to be some of the critical steps that you're going to take that are going to continue to make a difference in, in let's start with you on the Broad Street um, area. Um, I think for us at, uh, at BCC, it's Broad Community, Broad Community Connections. Connections. It's the name um, of the neighborhood organization that oversees development of Broad Street. Thanks. Um, but I, I think from us, it, it starts again with, just going door to door to introduce people to us and letting them know that we don't have any individual or any uh, personal agendas about what redevelopment in this neighborhood is besides prioritizing the original community members. Um, It's really just being patient and saying, okay, this will be a process and we're not rushing a result, but we're, um, as as we've uh, kind of come to say, we're conveners for the discussions to happen. And if nobody's investing the energy on the ground level for the uh, for the discussion, then there is no accountability for community land trust because there's no group voice. There's nobody hashing it out except people that have the time or the means to say, you know what, I'm going to go to this meeting every week or I'm going to go to every meeting that's in the neighborhood. And now it becomes a thing of who has the most time ultimately who has the, the the least to lose by coming. Mm-hmm. So it's our job to, and my job specifically, to go door to door to local business owners to let them know that I'm their point person and whatever they need that BCC can provide, I'm here for it. Um, so so I, I hear you saying that your vision is going to be the vision of the stakeholders, so to speak, in your area. But I, I bet you have some thoughts about what Broad Street could be like. I mean, draw me a picture. <laughs> draw me a picture. If, if if you had just your personal, this is nothing to do with the the organization's agenda or the agenda of the community. But I'm just curious to, to see you care about New Orleans, otherwise you wouldn't be doing this. You chose to work on Broad Street. What's your dream? That's a tough one. I'm gonna come back. <laughs> I'm gonna come back. I wanted to just mention. Um, through my experience, I taught at Tulane in the architecture school for years, and the uh, university would constantly investigate different areas and come up with 
um, proposals. And I know that the Urban Build Program has been, um, you know, really vital in um, trying to introduce affordable housing to um, kind of neglected neighborhoods, um, very piecemeal. But I'm also aware of one of the, um, Greg Enslin, um, he was the pioneer for the Ferret Street revitalization, which I think anyone that's been to Ferret Street recently, having seen it 30 years ago, would just be amazed. And somewhat the same with Oak Street. And I think it's really interesting um, to hear about the, the strength of a commercial corridor. And of course, that's something that's totally missing in the Ninth Ward. So there are things that kind of come full circle. Yes and no. I mean, St. Claude is... St. Claude is developing, not so not much in the Ninth Ward no, area, more above yeah. the Industrial yeah. Canal. Yeah. I know, but yeah. that has a way of, of moving. That kind of stuff moves. And you got Araby happening, and yes. that's coming from the other direction. So, again, <laughs> Ninth Ward may be the slowest to, for the commercial no, zone to come back. No, I was just meaning that it will be really good once that, and maybe that's something that, I mean, obviously, everyone knows that that needs to be focused on down there. The infrastructure is lacking for a community at the moment. Mm -hmm. and But it is happening. You know, you look at uh, Mitchell and uh, Mitchell Godet and Erica being the pie. I don't know how many times they've been persuading me that Araby's the place to be. And they really have um, it stirred up quite a, Listen, a different energy. Have you, you've been to the, the opening yes. of Araby Studios mm -hmm. on St. Bernard Highway when there were over a thousand people who came down there. Oh, my God, we're almost out of time. I hear my, my music. <laughs> and, and back to DJ. I guess to, to sum it up, it comes down to two words, ethical redevelopment. Um, if nobody's paying attention to the the daily sensitivities of the person at, uh, looked at, at at the bottom of the chain, then the top of the chain is ultimately going to suffer. Like we've talked about here, everyone's feeling the pressure. And so if we don't take the time to pay attention to the people that bear our culture, then we're all going to lose. So we're all in this together. Closing words. Those are the closing words. Amen. Amen. Thank you. DJ and Jeff and Andronika and Jeanette and Kim. Um, we're going to do this again. Yes. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. This was a, we're, we're just getting.